Hi, I'm Mikey Domegala, and welcome to episode 16 of Inside Buzz. Antonio Davis played 13 seasons in the NBA, where he was one of the most physical and toughest big men of the 1990s and early 2000s. He spent his first six seasons on the Reggie Miller-led Pacers in the 90s, then found himself in Toronto with Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady, where he had some of his best years, including being an All-Star in 2001. He retired in 2006 and then became NBA PA president and also a college and NBA analyst. And today, he still works for the NBA PA to help players plan for their post-basketball careers and even has his own transportation business. To all the young listeners, you guys know AD as Anthony Davis, but I have the original AD, Antonio Davis, on episode 16 of Inside Buzz. Antonio, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So we saw the resumption of the 2020 NBA season last night. What are your thoughts, you know, former NBA PA president, of how the league is doing with, you know, handling COVID-19? I think they're doing a good job. You know, I think everybody kind of knew that going into this bubble was going to cause some challenges. But I think as we, we listen to the guys and what's going on, they're excited about getting back, playing basketball. Um, it's a little different not having fans there, but they're adjusting to that. Uh, we've seen some some glimpse of of uh, great great plays, um, so I, I'm excited about you know the opportunity. I, I said it all along, you know. For me, everybody's going to have to trust the NBA, the MBPA, to put in processes and stuff to keep guys safe. That was number one, and then the second part of that is guys are going to have to come in in shape, ready to play so that there's no injuries. And from what I see, guys look excited, they're in shape, uh, and, and they seem to be kind of gelling faster than I thought. When you watch the games of the 2020 season, what are your thoughts on, you know, how far the game has come since your era? What are the differences between, you know, your 1990s basketball and then today? Craig, obviously it's not as physical. I think that's the first glaring thing, but that's the obvious one. The, the other thing I think is just um, players are just changing, you know, whereas before where you had kind of specific positions based on maybe size and anything else, um, you're seeing plays now where where AD, Anthony Davis, is, is grabbing a rebound, taking it the length of the floor, uh, they're swinging it around. He's shooting a three. I mean, here he is. You're talking about a guy that's six, six, eleven, six, ten, seven foot. Usually, when I play, those guys are on the box. Uh, they're rebounding the basketball. They're kicking it out. They're doing some different things. And now you see these guys kind of doing everything from A to Z. So uh, it's exciting for me, you know, as I'm always a proponent for bigger guys. Um, but I don't know if I could play in today's game. You know, I'm one that I like to like to tap on people and push people a little bit and feel that contact. So I'd be a little frustrated with the way they call the game. But as with anything, you just adapt and you learn how to be as competitive as you can without breaking the rules. And in your career, you know, drafted in 1990, then you played two years overseas in Greece and Italy. I read in an article you wanted to kind of hone your skills and even develop a bigger body before you join the NBA. How did, uh, you know, your family, friends, and even the Pacers take your decision to play overseas? You know, I think everybody supported it. You know, I had um, other guys that uh, went in the draft that year that decided to go um, straight to the team and try to make the team. And for me, I didn't want to go and sit. You know, I wanted an opportunity to practice, get on the floor, 
um, be thrown in situations where I was going to grow. Um, and I felt like going overseas, you know, pretty much practicing twice a day. And on top of that, only playing in, you know, probably two or three games a week will give me that, that space I need and opportunity I needed to grow. Um, um, I, it was a little difficult because, you know, you, you don't have many friends coming over to Greece to visit you. But my mom came and my brother came. So it, it, was, it wasn't as bad. Uh, but other than that, the Pacers were okay with it. Um, they were getting, you know, a lot of film on, on my progress. Um, and, they were, and then I came back after that second year and I played in the summer league and did very well. Uh, so it, it was just a matter of time before I felt like, you know, I was going to find um, uh, find my body and my game the way I needed it to be in order to go in and play with a team like the Pacers. And yeah, you said you had a great summer league. You also had a great rookie season. 7.7 points per game, 6.2 rebounds per game, and only 21 minutes per game. You're lacing them up next to Reggie Miller, Rick Smith, and other stars. What are your memories from your rookie year? The one thing I'll first say about that is I, I was truly blessed, man. I, I came to a team full of um, veterans that were professional. Um, they, they came in every day. They practiced. They were there early. They stayed late. There was a lot of camaraderie. They included everybody and everything. Um, and and you, don't, you don't get that with every team you go to, but it kind of um, established the way that I was going to go through my 13-year career. Um, and I learned, I picked up a lot of great habits um, playing against Dell Davis. I mean, we, we would come in after practice. We'd play one-on-one. Uh, guys would be playing three-on-three, two-on-two. Um, and, and you would think after a, a two-and-a-half, three-hour practice, we'd be ready to go home. But, you know, we knew that the work it was going to take because we had teams in our conference like, you know, Chicago Bulls, New York Knicks, and so on and so forth. Miami got good. Um, Orlando and Shaq and any, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy. So we knew we had to be at the top of our game, but um, very excited about going to a team like that and learning how to be a professional. I feel like every clip that I look up of you, it's you and the Pacers going up against another powerhouse, like those teams you mentioned. What, what are some memories of, you know, facing the Shaqs, the MJs, the Pennies, and then, you know, Ewing and the Knicks and all those guys. What, how was that like? You know, it, it, it was crazy. I would have weeks, like you just said, and where I would go to go to Florida, play against Shaquille, turn around, play against Alonzo Mourning the next night. You know, uh, I would go to Texas and it's Elijah Wan and David Robinson and, you know, whoever else Dallas had. You know, you, you go on a West Coast swing and you're just everywhere you looked, you, you were playing um, a team that had a big body, a great center and you're having to learn how to play. And I was, I, I truly was an under, undersized center, I think, at that, that particular time. But um, again, you, you just, you feel blessed to have a chance to play against some of those guys and learn, learn how to compete at such a high level. Uh, and then playing with the team that I had, I was always confident that we had a chance to win, which was always a good thing. Um, um, so when I think back on it, you know, um, I, I feel truly blessed and, and glad that I had the opportunity to play in that era. You also went to war with the New York Knicks from Plenty of Nights, Ewing, Mason, Charles Oakley. But, you know, to pick out one player from that Knicks team, Patrick Ewing, do you think he doesn't get the credit he deserves because he didn't win a ring in the 90s? Sure. 
you know, so many guys um, didn't have an opportunity to win, win the ring. There's only one guy who's going to win. And when you look at it and you see MJ won six out of those 10, 12 years of the 90s uh, and going early 80s and into the 2000s, you, you just, I mean, you feel for the Charles Barkleys and Reggie Millers and, you know, Patrick Ewing, all of them kind of fall up under there. Uh, because you have to look at Tim Duncan won, and Tim Duncan, David Robinson won a couple of times. Houston then won those other two years with Michael. Go so, I mean, it just is what it is. You, you face some great players that are going to go down as, you know, Hall of Famers, and not everybody can win. But, yeah, guys like Patrick Ewing, man, who were, if you look at his numbers, you look at the, the, the length of time he played in the NBA and the impact he had on the game, um, it, you know, I think he doesn't get enough credit, especially as a true center, um, on what he was able to do. A couple of months ago, the Last Dance documentary finished up. Did you watch? And you know, I'm sure it brought back some memories. Yeah, it, it was great, man. I I thought they did a great job. I learned a lot actually from watching it. I I knew all that was going on in Chicago, but back then they didn't have, um, you know they didn't have the internet and, and, and social media and all that. So you didn't know the ins and outs. You didn't know all the little things that were going on and to kind of get a behind the scenes view of, of all that was going on with that team. And, and some, and to some degree, how bad it was from a player's perspective um, was, was really interesting. And then to have MJ kind of throw in his two cents about certain players at certain times was really cool uh, Scotty Pippen, I, I, I think that, you know, there is no Michael at that level without a Scotty. You know, Scotty was a, a phenomenal kind of second guy. Um, um, so I, I don't think that he kind of got enough credit, too. Um, so it, it was and then there wasn't a lot of sports going on. So the fact that that came out, man, I was glued. I, I didn't know whether to wait until it was all over and kind of binge watch all of it or to kind of follow it each and every week that it came out. But uh, I did have a chance to watch it all. Do you have any MJ trash talking stories? And then if you don't, and you can answer the question, you know, this question as well. Dennis, getting tangled up with Dennis Rodman and kind of getting into a little scuffle. <laughs> Mentioned some of that stuff. I remember one time we were uh, we were actually uh, on the free throw line, and, and obviously I I have the the bottom spot, and MJ is is pushing on me as he usually is, and he says, "Don't don't worry about it, young fella. I, I got this." And I'm and so I immediately brace so that I can push him. And the minute the ball goes up he kind of stood straight up and I kind of leaned. And as soon as I leaned, he stepped right in front of me and grabbed the rebound and looked back at me. And I was like, see, those are the little things that people don't see. It's not really and truly always size and things of that nature. It's, it's, this, it's this competitive mental edge that Michael was just, he was, he was the king at it. You know, he can get inside your head. He can act like he's ignoring you a lot of different things to kind of throw you off each and every time. So you never knew how to approach him. Uh, and it was the same thing with Dennis Rodman. I remember the first time we were um, in a playoff series, which I had already known, they were like, don't just don't talk to him. Don't say nothing to him. And I'm wondering like, well, I mean, it's no big deal. He's talking. I can talk back. And they was like, but 
he can talk and average 15, 20 rebounds a game. You can't talk and average 15 rebounds a game. So I can just remember going and getting tangled up with him and he's constantly talking and, and I'm just keeping my mouth shut, but I'm kind of biting my tongue because I really want to say something to him. But I knew that was just a part of that tactic and I had to stay focused on, you know, what the Pacers needed me to do uh, each and every second I was on the floor. But those two guys were, were great at just that, that mental fight that was going on amongst players. With Rodman, you know, I think we can all agree that he was a weird dude. Was he saying some weird <laughs> things or was he just cursing you out? Man, he, he would say some off-the-wall stuff. Um, he, would, he would pinch and grab and push and blow kisses and just all kind of stuff that he would do. Um, but he was a competitor. You know, he was never, to me, dirty in any kind of way. Um, uh, he was always, you know, one of those guys where you just had to be super focused on what you were doing and always knew where he was every second of, of the time that he was on the floor. And, and, um, and even during the last dance, I remember him talking about um, how he would get up under the ball and there was a science to his rebounding and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, wow, I never really realized it, but it's true. When you, when you see him and the ball goes up, he's positioning himself in a crazy way. And if you're in his position, he would nudge you quite the right way to get that spot. It, it was phenomenal, you know, and you look back, he won a, a, a few rebounding champ. He was a rebounding champ a couple years at like six, seven, you know, so he, he was a phenomenal rebounder and just a, a heck of a competitor. And I mean, how can I not have you on and ask about the great Reggie Miller? You know, he was dominating from the three point line in a slow down NBA in the 90s. Put prime Reggie Miller in today's NBA. What do we get out of him? Man, some, you know, you see guys like Clay and Steph and, and Damian Lillard and all of that. Um, Reggie, to me, um, was one of those guys, man, where if he had space and, and you didn't realize he was so tall, you know, at six, seven, he was really and, and he shot the ball really high. You, you weren't blocking his shot. And, it, and all he needed was a little bit of space to get that that weird looking shot off uh, and, and, and truly accurate. I couldn't imagine giving the attempts that they're getting today, you know, why he wouldn't average 30 just on shooting threes alone um, and, and from deep range and was never scared to take a three, um, always good as, at his footwork and getting squared to the basket. Um, you know, the only thing I was – that I would kind of question that's different today is, you know, really being able to shoot off the dribble, you know, um, but I'm sure as hard as he worked, it wouldn't have been a problem for him. He would have definitely been able to shoot off the dribble and then he would have needed me because I would have freed him up and gave him all the time <laughs> he needed <laughs> to square up and knock down the shot. You know, I need you to spill the beans for me. Where were you during Reggie's eight points in nine seconds at MSG? <laughs> to be honest, I had gotten kicked out of the game and I was in the locker room, you know, throwing over, you know, turning over all the Gatorade and all that because I was upset. But I did have a chance to, you know, peep on the monitor as he was doing it. And it was it was almost like then I was a fan because I got a chance to watch it and watch some of the replays and stuff like that. And so 
although I was in the gym, I didn't physically see it. I saw it on the monitor like everybody else. And you had, you know, three legendary coaches whose first name starts with L. Larry Brown, Larry Bird, Lenny Wilkins. And you know what? I might as well in, add in Mike D'Antoni, who, you know, coached you in Europe. All of those guys, what did you learn from them? You know, uh, it's funny you say that. Um, Larry, well, start with Mike D'Antoni. You know, it was incredible to be over there and talk about the game from that perspective as I was playing overseas. Kind of really got me prepared um, from a mental aspect of going into each and every day um, because you're playing so many games. You don't have time to think about last game and whether you played well or you didn't play well. It was an ongoing kind of process. And then when I got to the NBA, Larry Brown's whole thing was just play the right way. If, if there was a defensive scheme, be where you were supposed to be. Don't shortcut anything. Don't do things outside of the scope. Always communicate. Just play the right way. And then you go to Larry Bird, who was a, truly a competitor, and it was about, you know, dominate, kill all the time. <laughs> it was like, I don't want to win by 10. I want to win by 20. And I, I don't like losing no game whatsoever. You know, so you just got locked into watching film and making sure that you were prepared mentally, physically to go out and dominate. And then Lenny Wilkins, it, it was it was crazy because I, I can remember um, just asking Lenny so many questions about him playing and the history of the game and what guys did before me and how were the conditions. You know, we have all this social stuff going on off the court. And my thing with, with guys like Lenny, who kind of experienced that kind of, you know, full-blown uh, as a personal experience, it was great to hear some of the stories and things that he had to go through. And it was kind of instrumental and kind of reaffirmed um, to understand the business of basketball and why I kept, you know, stayed so ingrained in the, in the MBPA. Um, so it, that... I didn't even think about all those L's that I played, you know, played for great coaches that I have, but it was truly a testament as to why I played so long. I played for some incredible coaches and played with some incredible guys. After Indiana, you get to Toronto, where you had four straight seasons of averaging over 11 points and eight rebounds per game, all-star in 2000. What changed that year to help you elevate your game? Well, I think it was a few things. One, I got an opportunity and nothing I have nothing against Indiana and people have always asked me if I had to do it all over again, would I have stayed? And the answer has always been probably yes, <laughs> I probably would have. But I also understood that, you know, in order to figure out or find out how good could I be, I had to go somewhere where I was going to be able to start and be a big part of the team. And the Toronto Raptors gave me an opportunity to do that alongside some incredible guys, Vince Carter, you know, half man, half amazing. And then uh, hooking back up with guys like Charles Oakley and Kevin Willis, you know, having to go um, play against him every day in practice really helped. And then a, a huge part of that was Butch Carter. You know, people don't talk about him a lot, but Butch was great at X's and O's. Um, I can remember I got hurt one time and he worked me out for like three or four days straight. And, and I had never been worked out like that before, physically, mentally, uh, everything, just teaching. Um, so I think it was just a, a combination of all of that that gave me confidence, one, and, and allowed me to grow um, in, in a position of coming off the bench 
and then becoming a starter, taking on that role, embracing it, and having enough confidence to to eventually make an all-star team, which was one of the highlights of my career. As you mentioned, Vince Carter, you know, we're going to put the young T-Mac alongside him. I can, yes, only, yes. I can only say two words, what if? But seriously, if those two stayed together, what would we have seen in the history books? I truly believe that, you know, Toronto has an opportunity to win that championship a little bit sooner um, because it, it would have established, you know, just Toronto in general. I think so many guys were a little leery of going up and playing in Canada and playing in Toronto on top of, you know, them being um, just a new franchise and not understanding what guys were going to need. But I think as years went on and the franchise got um, more experience, as guys went up there, they start realizing some of the things that they needed, you know, um, no matter what it was. And they did a great job at, at keeping guys there. All of a sudden, guys were signing two, three, five years, and they were staying there. Um, so I think that was that was kind of the difference. And, and, and Vince and Tracy and some other guys, they, they really were instrumental in getting guys to understand that Toronto's a great place to play like it is today. And how about in your career? What were your initial thoughts of, you know, landing in Toronto and going up north in Canada? After playing in Greece and Italy and, and all that, it, it was I didn't I didn't think twice about it. You know, I just saw it as a great opportunity to go play with some great guys. Um, and then when I got up there and saw that it was bigger than just basketball, it, it was trying to win over fans. You know, they were big into hockey and some other sports and here comes basketball. And all you're trying to do is get people to come out and watch. And they did, man, they came out. I remember our first uh, playoff series up there. It was it was it was electric as if I was in Indiana or any other big city. So um, I think it, I knew it was only a matter of time before, you know, like last year they win a championship. And I, I was so happy for, you know, Tannenbaum as being one of the owners uh, and just the fans in general, you know, to have an opportunity to witness that. So, uh, um, it, you know, it, I was happy to be a part of that, but I think it was all just a matter of time, to be honest. What's the craziest dunk you've ever seen Vince Carter or T-Mac do in practice? Man, um, I, I've seen both of them do some crazy stuff, but I think it all kind of came out when Vince was in that dunk contest. You know, some of the stuff that he did then, you know, hanging in the rim or, you know, bouncing the ball, going between his legs. Um, you know, you, you see them trying to do – 360s with the ball going behind their back, like all kind of stuff they would try. But, it, you know, I, I, you know, I can remember being in practices and, and Butch would kind of pair everybody up. So Tracy and Vince would be on opposite teams and me and Charles. And, and, uh, and then at the time we had, you know, Dale Curry, Muggsy Bogues, you know, Alvin Williams and Junkyard Dog. And, and so we would, you know, we would come in there, it'd be 10, 10, degree, 10 degrees below zero, and it'd be 100 degrees in the gym because Tracy and T-Bag was from Florida. They wanted the gym hot, the, the wall <laughs> sweat and all of that. But, you know, we all come in, take off our shirts, man, and just kind of go to work. 
and it was it was a phenomenal time playing with those young guys. And also in Toronto, you know, Del Curry, his son, a guy named Steph Curry. What do you remember about little Steph running around and, you know, his shooting form back then and stuff like that? Both of them, Steph and Seth, would, would come to practice and they had this kind of awkward shot, you know, of, of slinging the ball from, from their shoulders and with two hands sometimes. Um, and I can remember somewhere where Dale was talking about that, how he had to kind of, you know, break Steph's shot all the way back down because he was shooting with two hands, just wasn't strong enough. And, and he kind of suffered a little bit, you know, and then once he got it all put back together, you know, look at what it is now, you know, that's a testament of, you know, having that right foundation. And there's only one, one way to, you know, to have a great shot. You got to have proper mechanics, but I can, I, I can see those those young guys, man, were beating some of our guys when it came to shooting the basketball then. So I knew that, that both of them were going to be very special. You know, it was just going to be a matter of time. Later on in Toronto, Hakeem Olajuwon joined the team. What did you learn from Hakeem in practice, and what did he teach you? One of those guys you just sit down and have a, a ton of conversation with, very intelligent man with a lot of experience, you know, talking about the game. Um, and, and as you can see in the years, in, in, in these past years, he's been teaching a lot of guys about footwork and things of that nature. Um, so I, I remember playing against him a lot of times he was hurt, but when he was in practice, kind of just talking to him about timing and footwork and, and things that he did um, to be as effective as he was. And then listening to some of the stories that he would tell about playing uh, in Houston uh, was always great too, man. So yeah, you cherish those kind of moments to ask a lot of questions and watch, um, but you're just excited about, you know, um, playing in games and practice against guys like that. In 2003, 2004, you know, you go to the Chicago Bulls. That's after the Michael Jordan era. How did the city of Chicago deal with that and, you know, deal with the new team without MJ or Pippen? First of all, the Bulls have some of the greatest fans, you know, that they have truly loyal fans. And I think they're just want to be a part of that next moment. And, and Chicago was in that place of kind of rebuilding. So, you know, they have Eddie Curry, Tyson Chandler, Lil Dang, Ben Gordon, uh, um, who else did they have? Jamal uh, Crawford, right? Yeah, Jamal. Well, Jamal, I think at that time was traded, but then you got Chris Duhon, you got Kurt Heinrich. So they were all just super young. And I was, you know, they brought me in to kind of be the veteran of the locker room and whatnot. And those guys were phenomenal, man. They came to practice, they worked really hard. Um, they tried to do everything we asked them to do. They were fast learners. It was just going to take some time to kind of put all that together. We, I, I don't know. I didn't look at the stats, but I bet you we lost a lot of games in the fourth quarter just because we didn't understand how to win and close games. But they, these guys were always competing and trying not to make mistakes. Um, so I was, I think I was, it, it kind of gave me a little pep in my step to be around those young guys each and every day. And they taught me a lot too, just about, you know, hey, it, it's totally different in playing and teaching. And a lot of times I found myself after practice grabbing one of the guys and just going over, you know, some of the, some little things, you know, like Eddie Curry, his positioning when he was rebounding wasn't great and he was never a great rebounder. 
but you know, I can't teach effort, but I can definitely show you some fundamental stuff that'll help you become a better rebounder. And also on that team, I forgot to mention, I think Scotty Pippen made his comeback to <laughs> Chicago. Am I right on that one? Man, he was. I, now you talk about some fun. Um, while Scotty was there listening to all those stories while we were on the road, um, that that was worth it right there for me, man. I, I was like a little kid and asking plenty questions too about, you know, things that they did and, and some of the series they had against us. What were they talking about in the locker room? Uh, I can remember the one time vividly um, doing, I think that 98 series we had with them that came up in the last dance and they switched and put Scotty on Mark Jackson which disrupted our whole offense because Mark was like the head, you know, uh, whatever, whatever he initiated 90% of our offense. So when they put Scotty on it, it was hard for Mark to bring the ball up. He couldn't see over Scotty to initiate a lot of our offense. We had to kind of regroup after that. And, um, and, and I think that move alone really kind of gave them the edge that they needed to, to, to beat us in that seven-game series. You saw it all. The MJs, the Kobe's, the Shaqs, the Allen Iversons. Mm. Who, mm. I know, you you really played. <laughs> like, man, yeah. who is that was one guy who you just couldn't stop or who the Pacers or the Raptors just couldn't stop? Um, You know, it's hard to say one guy. Um. I'll mention a few. Shaquille was always, to me, a difficult challenge because it was just, he was so big and so agile and so dominant that I can remember a lot of times it was like, hey, just don't get him mad. You know, I walked into the game, I was his friend. You know, it was almost like Shaq. I'm, a, I'm competing against you because I have to. Like, that's what I'm paid to do. But I, I'm not trying to ruffle your feathers. You get your 24, 25, 26, and call it a night. Don't embarrass me, and I won't embarrass you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, won't, I won't even try to, you know. Um, but but uh, And then guys like Tim Duncan, who was just so fundamental, you, you really didn't know. You can keep him off his sweet spot, but he eventually get there. He was good with his back to his basket, facing up. He did a lot of great things. Um, and then lastly, when you talk about an MJ, it, it was it was difficult because you want to help, um, but then you can help because he had great shooters at that time. He had bigs that can finish. So you had to just kind of be, you know, in that kind of no man's land for a second, trying to figure out, you know, how was you gonna, how are you gonna help off Michael? But, um, but again, if if I had to pick one guy, I would I would probably say Shaquille was was that guy that was just, it was just very tough, you know, to to guard him and be very effective. And as you're talking about Tim Duncan, I'm sure he'd put you know 25 and 12 on your head <laughs> without any emotion. Right? He would just, None. I didn't talk uh, maybe a smile here and there, but that's about <laughs> it. You know what I mean? There, and there was nothing you can do. No no emotion. Um, 
Um, very, as a matter of fact, like I'm just out here doing my thing. I'm going to face you up. I'm going to jab a couple of times off the glass, take that, run back the other way. It was nothing to him, you know. He did it just so effortlessly. But uh, he, he was definitely fun to play against. Fast forward to 2020. What's going on in the life of Antonio Davis? You know, what's going on with the NBA PA? And how are your kids doing with their professional basketball careers? Man, everything is good. You know, I, I feel truly blessed to be sitting here talking to you about, you know, the good old days. Um, my, my kids are great. I got uh, three girls and a boy. My two youngest, Kayla and AJ. Um, uh, uh, Kayla's playing in the WNBA. AJ's playing overseas. So they're still kind of involved in basketball, which is great. Um, my two oldest are just, just women in the world trying to make their way. Um, um, I, I lived in Atlanta for the last 10 years, recently moved back to Oakland, California, where I was from, and just been engraved in a, ingrained in the community, man. It's, this COVID-19 thing is, 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 is really big, and things were already bad. It put a, put a damper on, on a lot of people who were already struggling. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out how I can use my voice and my resources to come back home, help, help this same community that raised me. Um, and, and on top of that, just kind of be a shining light, you know, uh, business is good. I started a couple of businesses. I'm, 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 uh, I have a transportation and logistics business. That's, that's kind of crazy too, because when you think about it, everything has to be transported from A to A to B. Um, everything you eat, clothes on your back, uh, furniture, you name it, has to be moved. And it's, it's a crazy industry, but I, I'm learning so much each and every day from my team and, and other people in the industry. Um, um, and other than that, man, you just, you just wake up every day and try to be better than you were yesterday. You know what I'm saying? And if, if I can leave anybody with that, it's, it's just that. You know, we're not perfect. We're human beings. But each and every day you wake up, you have an opportunity to be better than you were yesterday. And, and that's just kind of my mission and goal. And Antonio, come on, you mentioned all that without giving me, you know, the brand's name, the website, where I could find you on social media. Hook me up with all that so I could plug it in the interview. I, I appreciate that, man. Uh, I've been trying to get on social media. I'm not a big social media guy, yep, yep. but uh, on IG... Personally, it's it's just J-U-S-A-D-34 for IG, which uh, I'm starting to post. More, I probably posted more stuff in the last few weeks than ever. <laughs> you know, I usually originally had IG just to make sure I was checking on my kids, make sure they weren't posting anything crazy. Uh, they're adults now, so I can't say anything anyway. But uh, it's just a great way to stay in contact with them. Um, my, the name of my transportation and logistics company is called AI Logistics, which, um, which really just means athletes in logistics. I wanted to kind of start a brand because there are a lot of guys in this space that I haven't connected with, but I just felt like if we got together as a group and went anywhere, we can get into any door, we can do anything, but I just wanted to establish, you know, my brand and some success first. And then go grab them guys and say, hey, man, we're all in this space. Let's get together. Let's do something special. So um, that's that's been phenomenal in that. And uh, always on LinkedIn. Um, my AI Logistics has a Facebook page. 
Again, trying to get all that stuff together. Website, aologisticsgroup.com is where you can find us on the, on the web. Um, and all of this is, is new to me, man. I, I'm so old school. I don't know what to do, but I, got, I finally got to a bunch of young people that got me to understand the importance. It's almost like a storefront. You got to have a website. You got to have a social media presence. So we've been working on that the last few weeks and, and hopefully we'll be able to continue to grow in that space and, and kind of create a name for ourselves. And hey, listen, as old school as you are, you still found, you know, my page NBA Buzz and followed me yes. on media. So, you know, this is how we yeah. do it. I appreciate it. No, and thank it, you. I appreciate yeah, you. Thank you. What's one piece of advice that you have for a rookie in today's NBA when it comes to, you know, financial literacy and all of that, like life advice, stuff like that? You know what? And with all that's going on, and, and again, we didn't have social media. We didn't have a lot of the things like, to be a player today is tough. I'm not even going to lie. I mean, they <laughs> they have a lot that they have to manage and control. Um, but, you know, the one thing I try to tell guys in, in, this, in this thing today is, you know, don't let people do things for you. You know, no matter what aspect it is, see yourself as a CEO and try to learn, you know, things as they go. It's a lot. You know, you go from, coming out of college where you didn't even know where your next meal was coming from to having millions and millions of dollars. Um, don't just hire somebody to manage that. Hire somebody to teach you how to manage it. So if something is not right, you at least understand what that is and you can catch it and fix it or catch it and get rid of people so they can't take advantage of you. Um, and I think if, if, if they approach everything that way, then the biggest part is after they finish playing, which is a huge thing, we all go through that process when we're done. What are we going to do next? How are we going to take care of ourselves? Because the NBA and association have been taking care of us all, you know, for so long. Um, that translates because then you get into, into the community and you're able to um, you're able to give back in the right way. You're able to become a pillar in the community, a great father, husband, son, uncle, like whatever you need to be. So for those young guys today, it's, it's constantly be learning um, on how to manage your stuff because it'll translate as you continue to go through life. And to end it, who's making the finals and who's winning the 2020 NBA finals? It was kind of crazy watching the, the, the Lakers and, and the Clippers, um, although the Clippers are kind of shorthanded. Um, uh, I, I think that you, you obviously have to mention those two teams, but I, I, for some reason I can't help but think that there's going to be a sleeper team out there somewhere that kind of disrupts everybody's thinking of how this thing is going to go. Because you think about it, it's not just a a physical game now where there's camaraderie, you've had all this practice, everybody's kind of scattered a little bit, you know? There were a lot of turnovers and all that in that game, and, and guys are going to try to, you know, continue to try to find a rhythm. Um, can they find a rhythm quick enough? Um, can they put it all together under these circumstances? So with all that being said, I don't know if, and, and I know I'm jumping around the answer, but I mean, I don't think you're going to have a finals without a, without a LeBron or Kawhi and, and one of them in it. 
And then on the other end, you can't look past kind of Milwaukee, Toronto, and, and some of those other teams, Philly, maybe. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting, but I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know how they're doing it. We have to give our young guys a lot of credit for coming in in shape, ready to play, ready to adjust, uh, the bubble, um, you know, you, you, you haven't played in three, four months. Now all of a sudden it's a few games and then it's playoffs. Like that's crazy to me. You know, I, I wouldn't even know how to approach it, but I think these guys are doing a great job. Ladies and gentlemen, another great episode of Inside Buzz with Mikey Domagala. Antonio, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you giving me your time. It was a pleasure. Man, thanks for having me and good luck to you.